as an organization changes, all of a sudden incentives shift, going from a focus on projects to a focus on politics. And I saw that in my company, and you can see that in any company as it scales. You can see that when the conversation around the water cooler changes, from my project to my career. That's when you've crossed the tipping point. That's usually when incentives have shifted to how do, what do I need to do to get promoted? And frequently what you need to do to get promoted is the next, the thing that your boss likes and your boss's boss likes, the franchise project, the thing that's easy to sell up the chain. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Safi Bacall, an entrepreneur and former biotech CEO and author of Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. In his book, Safi talks in detail about how the wrong incentives can kill innovation, and that's one of the topics we will tackle today. This podcast is the latest in our committed innovator conversations between Eric Roth, who leads McKinsey's innovation work globally, and innovation experts around the world. You can find other committed innovator episodes at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. Eric, let's hand things over to you. Thank you, Sean. Really excited to welcome everyone to another episode of The Committed Innovator. Today, we are really fortunate to welcome Safi Bacall. Safi is a physicist by training, was the CEO of a successful biotech company, which he took IPO, was on the President's Council of Scientific Advisors for President Obama, and is the author of Loon Shots, a book that was number one on Bloomberg's list of most recommended business books. So Safi, really excited again to welcome you to The Committed Innovator. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on your show. We like to explore innovation from the people that have been there and done it. And you've been there and done it from lots of different angles. But when you wrote the book Loon Shots, why, why was it the right time to try to capture your thoughts in, in this kind of a format? Well, when I, I started a biotech company, it was almost 20 years ago. And uh, not long after I started the company, my father, unfortunately, was diagnosed with a rare type of leukemia, a type of cancer. And I was at the time working in the field. We were a cancer-focused biotech company. And I figured, well, now I'm in the field. I could do something to help him. I know all these scientists. I'm insider. You know, I'm a member of the club. Uh, but unfortunately, nothing I could do made any difference for him. And he died not long afterwards. And then over the years, as the company grew and we went public and got larger, and I spent a lot of time with other small, medium, even large R&D companies, I kept noticing how many promising ideas they had trapped inside the basements of these organizations, small or large, big, it didn't matter. Not because any of the people were bad people. Everybody wants to do something to make a difference, but there was something about structure, not even so much culture, but something about how they were organized that just kept good ideas trapped. Mm -hmm. And that over the years stayed with me until I actually ended up working with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors. And one of the things that we were tasked with is looking at the national research over the last century for the United States and what should we do for the next century. 
And I came across the story of what Vannevar Bush did during World War II, how he got a very large organization to innovate at astonishingly fast pace, a story that's not very well known, but ended up turning the course of the Second World War in ways that still most, most people don't know. And that really resonated for me. How can we translate some of the things that he did? What did he do? Why did he do it? How did he do it into the world of businesses and large companies and eventually small and mid-sized companies? And so that led me to Loonshots. In our experience, we see the same all the time. We see organizations that are so well-intended but can't get out of their own way. And you do spend a lot of time in the book talking about this the Vanover Bush sort of doctrine. And it was struck me because you have the military, which is a notoriously regimented and structured and hierarchical organization by definition. And yet here's an individual who somehow was able to create flexibility, agility, and thinking within that system. How did you stumble upon this particular story? And then, and why, why did these particular insights jump out at you as relevant for other, other organizations? How did I stumble across that story? Well, the, the first day that, uh, I was uh, asked with a small group to work on the future of national research for PCAST. The chairman of that group uh, stood up and said, your job is to write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. And uh, at the time, you know, I was a public company CEO. I'd been in the business world for 20 some years. I hadn't really specialized in science policy or, you know, uh, or certainly I had very little interest in politics or political history. So I had no idea who he was talking about. And I, you know, had the first thought was in, that went through my head was like, wow, how do I get out of this job? But I was, I was there and I went back over the history and I just found his story, uh, very interesting when leaders of large organizations say, you know, we were, it's just such a big struggle and it's impossible and it's so slow, you know, and we're running a 10,000 person company. Well, he did it inside a 2 million person organization and it worked, but it resonated with a bunch of other ideas I'd been thinking about, about how you want to change structure Mm -hmm. rather than culture, because he didn't change culture. You want that focus on, on time, on budget, on spec consistently with quality to your customers or to your soldiers, if you are making parachutes, you want them to open the same way every single time. You don't want a lot of risk taking or experiments. Actually, I remember after I'd written about sort of artists and soldiers and separating them, one major in the Air Force called me up and he, a lot, you get a lot of these calls after you write these books. But at the time that was very early and he reached out and he said, uh, you know, this is exactly what happens. You know, I operate a nuclear missile silo. And you know what? I don't want my guys experimenting with which buttons to press. And I remember thinking, well, that's really makes me feel so much safer and so much better now. So it's, it was a, just a very interesting history that was, uh, like I said, somewhat lost. And I found that, and I found drawing connections to be very, surprising in the kind of insights that you can make and also in the power of storytelling Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of business theories out there and most of them put CEOs to sleep within five seconds, including myself. 
I just found I enjoy, certainly when I communicated with my employees and my team and my staff over the 15 years or so that I ran this business, I always found it more effective to tell stories, either personal stories or stories of, you know, military battles or stories of other industries. And that's what resonated. If there were lessons in the stories that people could draw, then it was useful. I want to jump into a couple of the, the ideas because structure comes through quite a bit. And in our experience, lots of CEOs love to pull the structure lever. Yet, unfortunately, the story of most of these companies is not as positive as Vanderbilt Bush's results. In fact, you know, there's a litany of failed incubators, accelerators, and all sorts of structurally separated organizations that are meant to be great innovators. Uh, they just don't work. So what, what have they missed in, in, in pulling that lever? Oh, well, so first we have to get into what we mean by structure. So you can think of culture as sort of the patterns of behavior that you see, like what's on the surface. And then one of the reasons that I think Loonshots took off was because there's, it's not so much about the how and the what. There is the how and the what, but it starts with the why. And most books and most Audiences are used to getting, here's the seven things you need to do, or here's the five things you need to do, and they miss the why. Well, why do I need to do those things? And so what I started off with that was kind of interesting and fun for me was a model, a mathematical model of the economics and the ins of incentives inside an organization. And I showed why as an organization changes, all of a sudden incentives shift to going from a focus on projects to a focus on politics. And I saw that in my company, and you can see that in any company as it scales. You can see that when the conversation around the water cooler changes from my project to my career. That's when you've crossed the tipping point. That's usually when incentives have shifted to how do, what do I need to do to get promoted? And frequently what you need to do to get promoted is the next, the thing that your boss likes and your boss's boss likes, the franchise project, the thing that's easy to sell up the chain. And maybe shoot down your, your neighbor's good ideas because you don't want them succeeding. So decision-making hierarchies shift as well, and that forces the wrong, perhaps, decisions to allocate resources to the wrong things? It can. When you think about structure, what you want to separate is Patterns of behavior, things like culture, where there's, you say, you have companies with this pattern of behavior and they fail and companies with the same pattern of behavior and they succeed. What you're doing there, if you think of the glass of water, which could be liquid or solid and the underlying shift there, the phase change between liquid and solid, between favoring politics versus favoring projects as you get bigger, just like glass of water changes from liquid to solid as you raise the temperature. So... After you get past that analogy, you can think of culture as what do you see? Are the molecules sloshing around? That's liquid. Or are they completely rigid? That's the ice. You can think of trying to change culture as like yelling at a block of ice. Hey, molecules, could you just loosen up a little bit? Mm -hmm. No amount of yelling at a block of ice is going to melt that block of ice. Mm -hmm. But a small change in temperature can get that job done. Okay, so in an organization, help us understand, what, what causes a, a change in temperature? 
So you can think of reward systems as an element. What do you incentivize? If you are incentivizing and rewarding intelligent risk-taking and new ideas and their outcomes, you will get a very innovative culture. That's the element of structure. It's very easy to get that wrong. Now, if you are rewarding and incentivizing what works well in committee meetings, sounding smart in committee meetings, which actually often happens subconsciously because your boss is there and you say, well, you know that new idea on page 37, I don't think they dotted an I, and on page 95, I don't think they crossed the T, and if you analyze the NPF, they used the wrong discount factor, and your boss is like, wow, they did use the wrong discount factor on page 87. Oh my goodness, this person's really sharp. Maybe this person should get promoted. Boom. So inside a company, you have these different uh, forces, you know, the forces that reward sounding smart in committee meetings, things that will get you promoted versus stake and outcome. How much are my incentives and rewards tied to whether my project succeeds or whether I'm have ex- even if it works or doesn't work, whether I've taken an intelligent risk? Yeah. So, so coming back to then the accelerator question, what we often find in companies is we summarize it in, in what we call the green box. There's a, there's a lack of a defined value time frame and risk level that's baked in to a strategy that then, you know, cascades down to strategic operating plans that basically designs in innovation. The green box is net new growth. And we find that often doesn't exist in most organizations. And therefore the incentives and everything that goes with it, as you just said, all reinforce the core business model, which is the thing that has usually defined success for an organization for a long period of time. So then when the CEO yells at the block of ice and says, come on, let's go innovate. Everyone says, yep, that's fantastic. It must be someone else's job because I know what I'm supposed to be doing. You already told me whether you told me or it's implicit in my reward system. Just keep going where what I'm doing because I know I can hit my numbers. So if I pull structure, but I haven't touched any of those other things or haven't even adjusted the temperature, is this why the average accelerator just eventually dries up and goes away? So innovation labs almost always fail because they get the structure wrong. When I spend time with companies, firstly, I have to take a pause and say, there is no one magic wand. Everybody likes, here's my four things, you know, four things to do, and then everything will work. As you and I both know, that's not reality. Right. I have a list of 10 things that I usually go through with yes. companies, but we, number one, they fail in the transfer. And number two, they fail in the incentives. And here's what I mean by that. So often you see inside companies a barbell. It's a barbell structure. So I got my operating group. These are my soldiers on time, on budget, on spec, consistently to customers. And I got my artists, the creatives. And you spend a ton of money. Let's take uh, the Navy as an example. Trains. It's sailors. There's this incredibly rigorous program. They spend billions on on building nuclear engines for their nuclear submarines and training nuclear engineers. You know, they have 5,000 research scientists at Hopkins Applied Physics Labs working on crazy new ideas. Now, who's going between these two? The operators and the soldiers and the warriors and the sailors and the creative scientists? It's a high school kid with a clipboard. Now, it's not the first priority of the scientist to figure out how to translate it into the operator's language, into the warrior's language, or to understand where there's traction and what's working and what they object to and how to solve that problem, where there are hidden agendas and hidden barriers and sabotage. 
That's not his problem. He loves making cool stuff. He's a scientist or an engineer or she. Same thing with the operator. The operator is busy on training and war fighting and making sure the nuclear engine doesn't blow up. But what they don't have is the transfer. They haven't solved that problem. So there are a few companies that have solved that problem. And here's an example of how it works and where it gets stuck. I was with a very large investment bank, meeting with folks on their leadership team, and it's the exact same problem. They have you know, investment bankers and, and uh, traders and private wealth managers who are the best in the industry. And then they have, they're like, well, we need to be a technology company because, you know, look at all these technology companies. Well, we can't compete with hiring, you know, an equity in the startup. So let's just write them, you know, seven figure salaries. Awesome. Barbell structure, huge amount of money on a great technology group, huge amount of money on private wealth managers. And who's going in between the two? High school kid with a clipboard. So, so this, this role that you're, you're alluding to, it's one that we have pointed out for years as this translator, this bridge between science or technology and commercial value. It's broken in, as you said, so many organizations. And the question we often get is, oh, it, once, once it's described, the problem is, is, is defined. Okay, great. So where, where, where are these people? Who, who are these people that aren't the high school kid with the clipboard? And where do they come from? Should I take a, a science person and make them a commercial person? Or should I get a really curious engineering oriented commercial person and make them pretend that they're a science person and technology person for a while? Firstly, you have to understand not only the fact that there is a role, but what skill sets you want in that role. But where almost everybody falls wrong is in the structure in the reporting relation. And here's what I mean by that. So let's say if you have this intermediator, many companies have them. They call them, in the military is full of them, but they're not taken seriously. That's the problem because there's no career path. As an example, one person I was chatting with recently said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm that tech liaison, but I, you know, I was going to my counterpart to try to bridge to the soldiers uh, this new technology and the soldier's response was, well, the half-life in your job, your position is uh, 36 months. You're about 18 months into it. So I'm just going to wait you out for another 18 months and then you'll be gone. And that's reality. And that's also reality inside a lot of companies. So just because you have the name doesn't mean you have it right. You have to understand what the skill sets are. You have to understand being bilingual. You have to understand horizontal influence. You have to understand internal product market fit. When you create something internally, why is it or is it not gaining traction with your salespeople and how do you go back? But mostly you have to be a whisperer. The problem is bridging the divide between the two arms of the barbell. So many, you know, some well-known hyper-growth company CEOs have reached out to me and said, look, we were five people in a garage, then we were, you know, 50, then we were 500 and now like... I'm spending all my time putting out the bickering between these two groups. So here's, if you create as one example, one of these sort of program champion roles or whatever you want to call it, the key is where does it report into? One company that does this very well has kind of figured this out and they don't tell people. The one problem is prestige. So they create a career ladder, a separate career ladder. Let's call them program champions. Let's say it's one through 10 level. So it's not just a career, you know, transition. You can go all the way up to the top of that role. 
And imagine normally you have, let's say, Sally in the science group and Fred in the sales group and Sally comes up with a new idea and she shows it to Fred. And Fred, who is in sales, his goal is to get Sally away from his desk as fast as possible. Why? He's being paid on commission, of course, incentives. Mm -hmm. So he's making 15 sales calls an hour of which he can get three done, you know, three leads of which he can get one thing paid. Every hour she's at his desk, he's not making a call. So now Sally goes back demotivated and Fred is, you know, goes back to his calls and everybody's disappointed. If you have the person at the middle reporting into the research group, to Fred it's all the same. Couldn't care less. And this person has no influence over Fred and he goes back and it all stays within research. If you have the person reporting into Fred's group, then it's just internal bickering in the sales group and he's on Fred's side. And then it just escalates up and up and up until it gets to the CEO's desk and the CEO is tearing his head out. Why do I have all this bickering? I can't spend my time on anything but putting out the bickering. Instead, if you have an independent third-party mediator group, here's what happens at the middle. Let's say you have Melissa in the middle. And Melissa intermediates between Sally and Fred. So she speaks Fred's language. I said, Fred, okay, you don't like these five things. You want to get it away. The three things that she did, you know what? They're a little bit of a mistake. Okay, you're right. But what about these other two? No, okay, now you're speaking my language. Maybe. Now get away from my desk. I need to make sales calls. Back to Sally. Oh, okay, well, you just make a few tweaks. And she intermediates between the two. Now, if one of them's not cooperating, what, does it escalate? No. Why? Because Melissa's boss isn't either of their bosses. It's another person on the executive team. They don't want it to escalate for him to go to his peers and it to come right back down to them. They don't want that conversation to happen. That's an example of a change in structure of org design that all of a sudden shifts the problem solving and the incentive to the problem solving to the middle. All of a sudden, these three people better figure it out. Now, I suspect the size of the organization matters because I could imagine that solution working really well for a large organization versus where a lot of tech companies start is they intentionally create that tension where the CEO might be the visionary and they've got the product technology groups and then the marketing groups. And then there's the bickering that goes back and forth. And the CEO is the arbiter of most of those disagreements. At what point do you say, no, that's no longer an effective or productive way. And you need to actually rethink structure because I suspect most companies just keep growing up, you know, with that, that siloed sort of reality and end up exacerbating this, this disconnect. This, yeah, this, this, this is when the tension starts to, it gets too high. The way I describe it that resonates in the military, but also works well in any other organization is a car needs wheels and it needs pistons. It needs both of those things. But without oil, it won't run at high, high speeds. So if you want to go at slow speeds, that's fine. Don't worry about oil. But you need someone intermediating. As soon, as soon as you start to cross the barrier where the CEO can be involved in large and medium-sized project decisions, product decisions, customer decisions, once you're bigger than 10 or 50 or 100 people, the CEO can't be there. You're going to have these two groups and you need someone to help bridge that divide. 
So, so unique structural interventions that actually solve a specific organizational challenge or activity challenge are something that companies don't always do. They go to boxes and lines as opposed to, wait, there's a specific challenge our organization has. We need a solution like a, like a transfer role or translator. That's the structure side. You also mentioned incentives, and I want to make sure right, I come back to that. that. So let's take as an example that world-famous investment bank. Barbell structure, just like most companies with the innovation lab or the operators, the R&D group and the operators, et cetera. And the senior folks on the uh, leadership team were saying, like, you know, we're spending all this money on these, like, technologists and, like, nothing's happening. You've got a 21st century operating group. You have 21st century banker, 21st century investment bankers, 21st century, 21st century private wealth managers. You got a 21st century technology group and you have a 17th century incentive system. What are you paying the investment bankers on? Transactions. What do they care about? Leak tables. Every hour they're reading the PowerPoint from Rob on some new tool is an hour they're not talking to customers and working themselves up league table. What do you think they're going to do? There's a famous quote or a semi-famous quote or apocryphal quote attributed to, you know, Buffett slash Munger. Someone was asking them about incentives explaining behaviors. And they said, we used to say that incentives could explain 90% of behavior and we were mistaken. We believe it can explain 99% of behavior. So let's go back to your world-famous institution the CEO also needs to report results. Those salespeople that you described, because that's what they really are, they are driving the numbers. And technology group, interesting, maybe drives productivity, maybe creates some new ways to engage customers, maybe creates some new businesses over time, all small, all not really relevant in the near term. Is the CEO supposed to disrupt his or her sales force effectively and risk delivering the numbers in order to accomplish but more loon shots? Or are they supposed to sit back and go, you know what? I'm actually in a place where I'd rather just drive the numbers and um, maybe they're at the end of their career. Maybe they're at the beginning of their career. It could be either. They're incentivized implicitly or explicitly to just leave things the way they are. You How do you deal with that, that? Or you read that so often, but you know, having been a public company CEO yeah, and having been with the board and having spent, you know, so much of my time with so many other public and private CEOs, most CEOs want their legacy to be, we created something wild and different. And so there's a legion of very frustrated CEOs out there that just can't quite figure out how to unlock this. Right. And so it, one of the things, you know, we talked about finding clever structural solutions. Amazon is sort of a master at this. People talk about their culture, but if you look at what Bezos really did, so many of these things are structural. How do we design teams? How do the teams report? How do we manage our meetings? You know, instead of PowerPoints, we're going to do a 20-minute reading of a narrative. Why? Because structurally, that forces deeper thinking than PowerPoint bullet points. All of those are structural things that he tweaked. Those are little knobs, little changes to the temperature. And in Amazon's case, reinforced by tools and mechanisms like the memo, like the the um, the PRFAQs that reinforce those quote unquote structural decisions. And you know, and they, and incentives. They spend an incredible amount of time on what will we measure, not on 
preaching culture and little posters of innovate well, everybody sing kumbaya. It's about should we use this metric or should we use that metric? They overinvest early before anything starts in the metrics. So those are example. Each one of those things are examples of structural changes adjusting the temperature. And I want to be clear, when you're saying structure, just so no one's confused, you're not talking boxes and lines. You're talking a broader definition of structure that it incorporates some of these other aspects. All of the little things in in how you design your incentive systems, your reward systems, how you communicate and share information, what you measure, everything other than, hey, let's all get together every Friday afternoon and play ping pong and drink beer. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of companies in our experience do talk culture and believe that freedom within the framework is somehow going to get them a better answer. And so we have a a, a bit of a, a metric that we always talk about it is the correlation between foosball tables and failed innovation efforts. It's very high. The F and F correlation. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Foosball and failure foosball correlation. Foosball and failure. Yeah. Um, we, we, we say one in biotech, which is the shininess of the building. Yes. And the failure potential of the company. The shinier, the bigger the building, the more likely it is to fail. Because that's a reflection of, of the investment and allocation of resources going in the wrong direction. Sorry, I had to go there. But, 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 you know, innovation is a resource allocation problem in our, in our world. And so if you're allocating people, dollars and time against things that aren't directly in line with the activity that matters to drive innovation, then it's wasted effort and your probability goes way down. Right. So let's come back to the question you asked. CEO just wants to focus on the numbers and the salespeople. I I would start with challenging the intent. Most CEOs and boards that I've spent time with, it's a lot over 20 some years, they really do want to be working on something exciting and new and that's how they want to be remembered. The challenge is how do you make that happen inside a a medium-sized or large-sized or even hyper-growth company once you've gone past the 500-person mark? And folks ask me, you know, could you come in and help us with this? And then I'll I'll say, well, how do you know if I've, after I spend time with you, I've been successful? What are you measuring? Like, uh, I don't know. You know, if you're measuring the number of emails you send to each other with the word innovation in the subject line, that's probably not a good measurement. <laughs> How many BuzzFeed articles about creativity is the executive team forwarding? Not a good measurement, right? So what I talk to them about is if you, uh, the obvious no-brainer leadership 101. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Now, at the same time, if it's too complicated, it's just as bad, if not worse. And then Once you can measure it, you can reward it and incentivize it. But once the CEO starts, syndicates the concept with his board of directors around how much should we be allocating to A, to B, to C, and measuring it, setting up a system and a process for getting a fair, unbiased assessment. How much money are we putting in our cruise ship franchise where we dominate the lane in the ocean that we're sailing? What percent of our... FTEs and expenses are allocated to the little speedboats. Well, little deviations from the mothership. It works great. If it doesn't, it comes back to the mothership. No harm, no foul. And how much are we putting in the helicopters that are picking up off the cruise ship and going distant, distant, distant lanes? And once you start creating a system and a process for measuring that 
in an unbiased way, because if you go to a department head and you say, you talk about cruise ships, speedboats, and helicopters, and you say, well, what, you know, what percent are you? Everybody's like, we are so innovative. For 20 years, we've been using vertical lines on our website. Guess what? We're shifting to horizontal lines. That is a total loon shot. And you know what? No, not really. In listening to you, I'm reflecting on some conversations with executives I've had in the consumer packaged goods industry. They historically and continue to overweight certain metrics related to market share, which one could imagine if that's your measure of success or one of them, one of the measures of success, because A, it's externally available. There are companies that track those things and you can point to them and claim you're innovative because you are rising in those numbers. B, it supports a business model that's been around for a while on volume. Uh, and C, it's visible, right? I can go into a shelf in any store and look and see how proud I can be if my company has a good market share because, you know, consumers will see it. Now, of course, with the pandemic, that changed a little bit. And maybe we're seeing some of the cracks in the model because all of a sudden those shelves don't exist. They're virtual shelves. And um, the shelves that matter are fewer and far between. So is there a danger in getting too simple with your metrics because you might pick the wrong one and then orient your entire business? Yeah, it's death by NPV. Exactly. So there's no better way to kill a innovation. Well, I can think of lots of great ways to kill innovation. Death by NPV is one where you insist on tell me the NPV of your project before you start. And oh, by the guess way, what? it has to return in one year. Yeah. And guess what? That company is going to be dead. I give the example of the transistor. When they Probably the most important invention of the 20, 20th century and they couldn't figure out what to do with it when they first invented it for five years because it, it was actually the opposite, opposite of Clay Christensen's theory. Exactly. It came from it was the largest the company, design. not yeah. the smallest. It was, it was the, the most, most expensively priced, not, not the cheapest price. price. And, and it, it was, was bought, bought by, by only the most expensive customers, customers the military in the beginning. And, and, the, and the company couldn't figure out what to do with it for five years because it was too unreliable and too expensive for phone lines. So the first application was hearing aids. Mm-hmm. Now, now, if you're, if you're a, business a business guy, guy and I come up to you and I say, all right, here's, here's my idea. idea. I'm, I'm going to spend all this money on making pure silicon and germanium crystals and solving surface state, state, you know, problems, problems and figuring out new junctions because I, I think I can make a better hearing aid. aid. And the market for that is a million dollars. You'd be like, end of project. And that would be the end of the transistor. So, so let's talk about loon shots. Because now we're in the loon shot realm here with this example. And you talk a lot about how to nurture them and, and, and where they come from. How does a big organization who has a transistor, in, metaphorically, deal with that? Because you're right, the business case, as soon as the first you know, line of the business case gets written, it's DOA, dead on arrival. Right? There's no world in which the hundreds of millions of dollars to do everything that you just described is going to make sense in the market of a, of, a, of a hearing aid. And you could probably go company by company and find examples of a wonderful technology that may or may not have a market opportunity, or certainly it doesn't fit the business model of the core. So how do you make money off it in the same way? It doesn't make sense to anyone. Xerox Park, as I actually I read about, was a great example of A, of the two things, failure in the transfer, and B, incentives. We talked about incentives. Five, 10 years after Xerox Park more or less died and all the technologies went elsewhere. But the guy looking back at the history of that said, why did that 
legendary innovation lab fail. You know, we were so angry at the people on the development and manufacturing side. We'd invented the first computer. Yeah, the they defined history. Yeah. And then I said, who do you think created Xerox Park? Management. Yeah. Why did they create Xerox Park? Because the CEO and the, the top couple of people said, well, we're a one-hit company. We're a one-hit wonder with the Xerox machine. And it's probably going to be a mature market. The Japanese are coming in. And they were right. So they set up an innovation lab. And they were right. What did they miss? The transfer, the incentives. They kept rewarding manufacturing and salespeople on the number of typewriters and Xerox machines they were selling. So what did Fred and Sales do when they came over with the personal computer? Why should I stop making sales calls where I get a check, take one day or two days or five days out of my week to figure this thing out? So, so is the answer that as you create these incentives, a large organization needs to create the space, the space and time and patience to learn and experiment with some of these loon shots and the ability to create the evidence that may come from different places to have confidence that's a good bet to make. Otherwise, how do you succeed? Well, I'll tell you the opposite of what to do. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and then we can figure out the opposite of what to do. You know, we talked about the transfer. Don't have, just have high school kids with clipboards going between Get rid of the groups. clipboards. Yeah. <laughs> high school just, kids. Don't have anybody in science who can speak business and vice versa. And don't make it a serious job and downplay its role. Right. And everybody laughs at the liaison transfer guy. Trade as high did. silos as you possibly can between the commercial and the technical right. side and don't, of business. Don't take yeah. it seriously as a career path or as a job. Don't think about oil. Just put all your money into pistons and all your money into wheels. And don't put any oil in your car. Perfect. So number one. That's going to be Number two, the incentives. Just pay salespeople on what they're, on their outcome, on their output, and just pay science people on how cool their science stuff is. Don't worry about the transfer. Number, uh, number three, run business plan competitions. Here's an awesome way to kill innovation, a business plan competition. Mm -hmm. Why? Here's a typical business plan competition. I would like you to write the business case and the total addressable market and what is your channels and what are your distributions and what are your options and if that doesn't work and calculate for me the NPV and the uh, IRR and assume a couple discount rates and plug those numbers in and you know 95 pages and a PhD thesis later and in their 90 page deck along with 200 other people to a three person committee who are very well intentioned. But now they're flooded with 18,000 pages, mm -hmm. right? And they're like, and they have a day job. Yeah. And they can pick two of them. What did you just accomplish? The, you created 198 innovation anti-catalysts. 198 pissed off teams and people who are going around in the water cooler mm -hmm. in the before days when there was a water cooler, going around and saying, this place sucks. You know, I put all this time. My idea was fantastic because, of course, my idea is fantastic. Always. Still saying, I'm never doing this again. You have just killed innovation inside your company with a business plan competition. What should you do instead? A hypothesis competition. Tell me your hypothesis and your way to test it in one week and $1,000. Mm -hmm. Be as creative in how you test it. And you give them some training because there's an art form into, mm -hmm. into being as creative about hypothesis and test, which is not familiar language for most business people. It's very common in science, but not very common in business. Let's launch a new type of pizza 
and brand and see if customers buy it. Here's you know another uh, kind of a real world example. Let's put let's print leaflets of this type of flavor or brand or, or food kind of pizza on all these windshields one afternoon and create a website and see how many people go to the website for their free discount, you know, six pizzas or whatever, and see how that compares across different types of pizza. Mm -hmm. Without ever making a pizza, you've now got very valuable data. Mm -hmm. So there are very creative ways to do this. Now you run a hypothesis competition, you train people, you have 200 people apply, and guess what? You can fund all 200. It's worth $200,000 to create 200 innovation catalysts. Will all their experiments work? Of course not. But now what, what's even more important is you're creating an experimental mindset. This is the goal. And when it doesn't work the first time, they may get a new idea. Hey, we tried this brand of pizza, but totally surprisingly, people wrote in they wanted this like derivative, this thing that's a little bit different. Why don't we try that? This is how great ideas really develop. They're random walks. You talk about the role of failure, and we also say, oh, fail fast, which I always think is, is the wrong way to think about it. I think you want to learn quickly, not fail fast, which is sort of what you say a little bit, which is how do you know whether an experiment or a failure was a good or bad one? Because, again, it depends on what test you're running. But I think in your book you suggest that oftentimes people are looking at the wrong signal when something fails and didn't realize what worked and what didn't for the right, right. reason. Right, that's a false fail. It's actually very, very common in a lot of businesses. They don't know how to read their experiment right. That's right. And actually, uh, so I talk about kind of the three deaths of the loon shot. And when I was working on a new drug project, we were working on it in, my, uh, in the lab, and I was feeling really kind of disappointed or uh, frustrated one day. And Sir James Black, who is a Nobel laureate chemist and um, pharmacologist, came in. Uh, was advising us and told me, oh, Safi, it's not a good drug unless it's been killed three times. And if you look over the course of really important breakthroughs, most of them failed many times before they succeeded. And that's where fail fast goes wrong. So where companies struggle, and actually I just found out recently, Bezos has been saying the same thing, that most companies are too impatient there are many examples of false fails from jet engines where the first planes obviously just didn't work. Tanks in the military. It was invented in 1918 in England, but it was used successfully only in World War II because sometimes you might have a successful product, but what it needs to make it really take off is married with a successful strategy. The personal music players existed long before the iPod, but it was a strategy that Apple did. They were very good at combining product and strategy innovations. So it's combining the right product and strategies. So how do you set up a good experiment then? So how do you teach a big organization to act small? You focus on the inputs, not the outputs. You focused on what is the experimental design and did we run the experiment well? I, I think of it as system mindset versus outcome mindset. So as an example, let's say you launch a product and the product's a dud. Sort of the zeroth order version of this is sort of like, okay, next product. But the average or pretty good version of this is 
okay, well, let's have a postmortem. The product had this feature and we didn't know that competitors were going to introduce that feature. And uh, it turns out customer behavior preferred this versus that. Okay, so let's make sure, you know, it's a green widget instead of a red circle next time. Done, move on. That's focusing on the outcome. But the really good companies say, how did we arrive at that decision? How was our system set up? How were the teams structured? What were we measuring before? How did we decide to launch that product at that time with those features? Who made that decision? Not with the blame, but how do we change the structures of how we make launch decisions in the future? Is it, is it possible also that the actual valuable problem that they were trying to solve wasn't well-defined? So as soon as that product fails, it's easy to discard because there was nothing anchoring it that said, oh, wait, actually in the market, there was something really valuable that we really should be going after. But no one knows what that is. So therefore, when the feature or the functionality or the whatever performance attribute didn't work, like, okay, that didn't work. Let's move on to the next. Forgetting the fact that, wait, actually, there was a market need there that was where we started. There, there are many things you want to do to analyze the system. One of them you just mentioned, which is if you're, over, if you're defining your market as too big, that's a big problem in your system. Why did you define your market that way? And all of this comes back to creating a system for running experiments at pace and at scale. A large number of experiments as fast as possible where you get data that's good at high quality as possible. And as you said, if you have set your market you, as defined it as this, you know, all people in the United States, well, that was probably not a very good experiment. I'm exaggerating, obviously, for effect here, but what's your market share among all people in the United States? It's really, really low. You know, maybe you want to revisit, find one specific group of customers with one specific job that needs to get done or need or pain point and one specific distribution channel. And are you making traction there? If not, why not? Now, what you want to do in advance is have a clear hypothesis with pre-specified outcomes, numerical, and if you don't succeed in your hypothesis, do you have a new one? Then you keep going. If you don't have a new hypothesis, then maybe it's time to stop. Last question. You talk about not being blindsided. How do you help an organization not fall prey to overconfidence that they think they have the answer? There are two sort of fun exercises I sometimes do. One of them is a red team, blue team, loon shot exercise where you have, you break up two groups of people, two small teams, and you're the red team and you're the blue team. The red team is the attacker team is like, how would we kill our company? What loon shots are out there on the horizon that will kill our company? Do everything you can to kill our company. Blue team, same thing, but on the defense side. What are the loon shots are our competitors maybe missing? What are loon shots that are out there if we go un- try to understand our customers better and the jobs that they need to get done that are getting done today? What loon shots can we use to defend ourselves and really to overtake our competitors regardless of what they have to do with our existing business? And you don't have the CEO on these teams and you don't have the CFO on these teams and you don't have the COO on these teams. You let some younger people knock themselves out with crazy ideas. So that's one exercise that's a lot of fun. B 
because it also liberates a lot of energy and gets people out of their comfort zone. Another one that helps people get past ingrained, ingrained ways of thinking is come up with four future personas. So everybody knows what a marketing persona is, you know, the soccer mom, the urban dad, and so forth. And this is where a lot of, you know, executive teams or board discussions can go south when you start saying the future is going to be like this. No, I think the future is going to be like that. So you say, you know what? Totally okay to have different. Let's create three or four future personas. And who here thinks they can predict with 100% which one of these this is going to be? And it's... Obviously, nobody is going to raise their hand. But we have these biases, even if we don't articulate them, that we know what the future is going to look like. But we don't. So you use that as a jujitsu move to set aside some of the barriers. Oh, there are three or four possible ones. Oh, so we can't really tell. What are some good moves today that might be okay under any of these future personas? And you give them names because it's easier to understand that way. Well, Safi, this has been an amazing exploration of history, current business thinking, potential futures. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Safi and Eric, thanks so much. And thank you to everybody for listening. You can find a transcript of Safi and Eric's discussion on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 80 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, or you can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.